This morning I was um, really impacted and impressed with this idea of focusing on the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. Especially because we've spent the last several weeks uh, thinking about and even perhaps being in services that were all geared towards Jesus' birth. I think it's only fitting that we supplement that with, with looking at Jesus' death. Only because as the song says, this is the reason why he was came, why he came at all. He was born to die. And I think it is very fitting that we start off this new year with this sort of, uh, sort of message to keep in our minds. So this is what I want to do this morning. I think actually Luke 23 is one of the most interesting sort of glimpses at the cross. John's particular gospel spends a lot of time on the cross detailing other things that don't appear in the other gospels. But Luke's presentation of the crucifixion is always fascinating. He presents a couple of other phrases and words that Jesus spoke from the cross that don't appear in other gospels. We often, as Christians, rally and we find all of our hope and perhaps our energy in that phrase that appears in John's Gospel, chapter 19, where Jesus from the cross cries out, It is finished. And rightly so. It's a great phrase. It's sort of our rallying cry as a church. But I would say that even here in Luke 23, there's two other words from the cross, if you will, that Jesus speaks that are just... As much, perhaps even more, filled with meaning and truth and grace for us. The scene of Jesus' crucifixion is one that perhaps we're all very familiar with. You've perhaps heard several countless sermons on the cross of Christ. And, and all of the events that led up to it. And all the events that were happening during it. And, and many different aspects that we can look at this particular scene. The horrible scene of Jesus' crucifixion. But I think in a way, all of that familiarity often does us a disservice. You know, familiarity killed the cat. Isn't that what the phrase is? Or breeds contempt. I don't know. It's one of those idioms. Regardless, curiosity killed the cat. Yeah, that's what it was. Sorry. I I don't know all my phrases, but there you go. Uh, Familiarity breeds contempt. And I would say sometimes that's true with particular passages of Scripture. We often just assume that we, that we know how they're going to end because we know the ending. So we don't let ourselves sit in what the scriptures are meant for us to see. We don't let them surprise us or catch us off guard. And I think very often we should treat the scriptures like we're trying to be surprised by a movie that we've seen for the hundredth time. <laughs> You've seen it so much you know exactly how the movie's going to end. Except sometimes if you just let yourself be surprised, you could be caught off guard by what you see and by what you notice. And I think that's how we should approach these particular passages that seem so familiar, seem so common almost. And I think what's surprising about Luke's presentation of the crucifixion is just how matter of fact it is. Notice verse 32 again as he begins this little scene Of going through this, or I should say this little record of going through Jesus' crucifixion. Notice he says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
I think what's interesting about just that little record is just how very factual it is. There's no sort of pause. There's no sort of editorial comment that gives more drama to the scene. Actually, it's just a statement of facts. It's very much like a doctor's post-operative report. Here's what happened. Here's where I made the cut. Here's what was taken out. Here's what was fixed. You can almost imagine this being Luke. Of course, Luke being a physician, you can, it makes sense that he would be very factual with his relaying of these facts. <laughs> the scene is just relayed to us as if, here's Jesus, there was two others, one was on his right, one was on his left, they're at this cross... And the cross, this, he positions us right where they think, uh, right where he knows them to be. It's a place called the skull, which is the, uh, the word that we would most associate with it is Calvary or, or Golgotha. It's a place just outside of Jerusalem. He's being very specific, hinting, of course, again, at his occupation. But I think it's in keeping with how we should think about these crucifixion scenes in the first place. Because I think if you were to read all the Gospels, one of the interesting things about this, about this scene of the crucifixion, they're actually not as detailed as you might imagine. Actually, many of them just say, he was crucified. And that was that. They detail some of the surrounding events and, and some of the different interactions that take place by those in the mob and whatnot. But actually, if, we, if you want to know what a crucifixion actually entailed, these Gospels don't really detail that for us. They don't really tell us what was involved in a crucifixion. Which I think is an, is an important pack, uh, point just to think about. Because I think what's left out is all of the gory details. All the, the graphic sort of descriptions that could be put in these particular scenes that are not there. We don't know exactly how horrifying that afternoon was for Jesus' disciples, but also for Jesus himself. And I think that's by design. Because I think any human description of Jesus' suffering, of Jesus's, of, the, of the brutality that he endured by the hands of those who were mocking and spitting at him and jeering at him. Any of that, any type of human description of that would fall very short of what, what was actually occurring. It wouldn't go far enough. And actually, I would even say this, that if some of those gospel writers were to indulge into sort of recording all the minute-by-minute sufferings and detailing all of the gruesome and gory details, I think that would actually do us a disfavor. That actually wouldn't be doing us a service. Because then what would our depiction of Jesus' suffering look like? It would be limited to their description of it. It would be limited by the confines by which they put it into human language and vocabulary. So actually what they're doing is they're actually giving us more opportunity to ponder and to reflect on all of the gravity and the gruesomeness that Jesus endured for you and for me. We don't need to see it or to read about it. But we can know it by faith. Know it by perhaps just that simple phrase, and they crucified him. We can learn perhaps what that has involved. But I think by not relaying those details, actually I think what appears in our mind's eye is often worse than what they would describe. The closest we get, by the way, to what this afternoon looked like actually comes from a prophecy in Isaiah 52. 
You can go there if you want. I'll just read the verse. It's Isaiah 52, verse number 14. A prophecy of the Messiah, of the Christ. And in this we are given a a, a small little glimpse of what he would endure for the sake of sinners. It says... Isaiah 52, 14, as many, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. A prophecy of Jesus that seems to hint at the fact that what happened that day at Calvary, what happened to, to the Savior's face, was that it was so graphic and so horrible that you could hardly even tell that he was a person anymore. His face was so marred. His body was so ripped to shreds. As it says, he didn't even resemble a person. Which is just to say that whenever we see the cross sort of portrayed in the media or some such piece of art, it never goes far enough. It's never entirely accurate. It's a little bit watered down because we don't know and we can't even imagine how gruesome it was. Actually, if you do some research, which I did, maybe you've done this before, but crucifixions were were horrible, horrible affairs. And the Romans took pride in, in perfecting them and perfecting all of the exactness and the horribleness of all the pain and torture that comes along with being crucified or subjecting some such criminal to being crucified at all. And in fact, all the ancient historians agree that this was the most supreme, the most vicious, the most cruel, the most inhuman form of punishment and judgment was to be crucified. It was actually to be subjected to a very long and prolonged death. That's essentially what was happening. They were extending your death and until you couldn't even take it. Your body just gives up. They were wearing you down. Crucifixions, as you might know, lasted for hours or even days. As those who were nailed to Roman spikes would hang there. Almost without end as their suffering was prolonged purposefully by those who were carrying out such judgment. And every aspect of a crucifixion was meant to sort of heighten the shame and heighten the disgrace and to really make the humiliation that much worse. We see it, of course, as, as it's detailed in all of the Gospels, all of the, the sort of leading up moments to Jesus' cross. It heightens the shame that, it ha- that occurs in this moment. But for anyone who was to be crucified, stripped and beaten, spat at, cast aside and disregarded. In fact, it's interesting. If you do, if you read some historians, in fact, if you see paintings of a cross... Where Jesus is high and lifted up, that's actually not entirely accurate. It wasn't as if he was on some such 18-foot pole. Actually, he was only probably about three feet off the ground. A cross was very low to the ground, almost as if you could look into the face, look into the eyes of the one who was suffering. And I think that's what is so sort of ominous about Roman crosses. All the agony and the torment and the suffering The visceral pain of the one who was there hanging there was painfully close. It wasn't distant, high lifted up. It was right, almost at eye level. 
making it to where those who would be walking by, they couldn't avoid it. They could, you couldn't avoid looking at someone hanging on a cross when they're right there next to you. And usually that's what happened. They would hang people on crosses on a thoroughfare, on a way in which everyone would have to see. And it was a shame on both those who were standing there. And it was also a very stark, very disturbing reminder to anyone who would walk by as if to say, this is what can happen if you resist. This is who you're messing with. A very bloody, very naked reminder of what Rome was capable of. Christ's crucifixion is exactly that. It's horrific and shameful. It's the ultimate example of Jesus taking the place of sinners. That phrase that we, that we repeat so often. It happens here. He's taking the place of the worst of the worst. And in fact, it's emphasized a couple of times in our text in Luke 23. If you notice in verse 32, notice what it says. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to that place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. It's an emphasis, this repetition of the idea that there's criminals surrounding Jesus at his moment of death emphasizes what? The fact that he's taking the place of the worst of the worst. He's being regarded and recognized as nothing but a criminal. Which, by the way, this is Pilate's way of sticking it to the Jews. (laughs) I was actually doing some reading in the other gospel presentations of this particular scene. John 19 is very fascinating. Only because Pilate didn't actually want to crucify Jesus. He was actually sort of left with no other choice because he had this mob shouting at him outside his door. But what ends up happening is, and when this decision to crucify Jesus, to sort of pacify the crowds, he makes sure that those who were Jews in the crowds realize what's going on. He crucifies him as the king of the Jews. Remember, he insists That that phrase be written above Jesus' head on that plaque. He says in John 19, I've written what I have written. Even though those who were sort sort of the spokespersons for the crowd were saying, No, you can't write that. He is not our king. You should say, He claimed to be the king, but don't say he is the king. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. Why was it? Why did he do that? Why did he insist on crucifying Jesus between two criminals? It wasn't just That they happened to have two guys on death row. And their time was up. This was a way for Rome to really stick it to those Jewish rabble rousers. You think you found your king? Look at your king. Naked and bloodied. Hanging between two criminals. This guy that you thought would be your Messiah. Look at him now. You can sense Pilate's sort of vitriol. He almost sort of relishes it. Even though he didn't want to do it. Because there was no legal bounds for it. Even Pilate was making sure that all who saw this saw what? Rome's dominance. He was making a political statement as much as anything else. But yet in all of that, what was occurring? What was happening in that moment as Jesus is being spiked to a Roman cross between two criminals? The words of scripture are being fulfilled. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. That wonderful chapter that 
speaks to and prophesies to the sufferings of the Savior who comes to intercede for us. And what does it say in verse 12? Notice what happens. What is, notice what Isaiah prophesies. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, what's going on right in this moment is that Jesus is fulfilling scripture even as he's being nailed between two crosses. It's similar to that ridicule that's thrown at Jesus. You're a friend of sinners. And Jesus would say, yes, that's the point. Yes, that's exactly the point. I have come to intercede on behalf of sinners and criminals and lost ones. That was his mission after all. To take the place, as he says in Luke 19.10, to come and to seek and to save the lost. And this is that amazing picture that we have here for us. Jesus going to this place of lostness and death to save those who were dying. And you have this scene, therefore. A scene of horror and public uh, Shame and and mockery. And all the while, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus concerned about? I think one of the most amazing verses in all of scripture is Luke 23, 34. Where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. If you read the other verses, the Jews are poking fun at Jesus. The soldiers are scoffing him. They're mocking him, shouting at him. Why don't you just get down off the cross, why don't you? If you're truly who you say you are, just come down and save the world, as they say with a a wink and a grin, as if they don't even believe in it at all. The soldiers even extend a cup of wine to him and say, go ahead, refresh yourself. Come down off the cross and take a swig of this drink, goading him. To come down off the cross. Little did all of those in that crowd know that he could not be the Savior unless he stayed on the cross. If he gave in to their temptations, he would be giving in to exactly what the devil had tempted him about all the years prior. Remember the wilderness, Satan comes and tempts Jesus, just bow at my feet. And you can have all that is here that you see beneath you. It's actually the same temptation that Peter tried to get Jesus to give in to just a couple hours before this moment. Remember, Peter tries to say, you don't have to go to the cross. That, that never be Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. The cruelest form of temptation is the temptation that Jesus could forego the cross. He couldn't if he wanted to be the Savior. And in fact, that's what he is. He is the world's Savior precisely because he stays on the cross. He saves you and he saves the world because he did not save himself. He endured all of that. All of that for you. That cross, that horrible scene of crucifixion. 
with all of its blood and its shame and its horror and its humiliation and, and its and spit and its splinters, all of that is what is the saving action of God. And here he is crying out, even as he's being ridiculed and mocked, forgive them. This is the heart of God for you. <laughs> Is the heart of God for sinners, even in the midst of their sin. What is he so concerned about? Their forgiveness. He's staring down the face of his abusers, the face of his mockers, the face of those who are poking fun at him, the face of those who are spitting at him, the face of those who've betrayed him. And what does he say? You're forgiven. It's a scene that is owed a lot of silence. Because we cannot fathom the love that is on display, that is on display through Jesus here. With spikes in his hands and his feet, he's not thinking about self-preservation. He's thinking about your salvation. Even as he was dying and bleeding out, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about sinners. And the next scene even proves that even more. In verse 39, we have that comment about one of the criminals who starts to rail, or we could say curse at Jesus. He starts cursing at him. He starts following along with what the mob is saying. If you are the Christ, why don't you just save yourself and us? In his mind, it's probably a very logical question. (laughs) They're all enduring the same things. They're all hanging on a Roman cross, naked in front of everyone, bleeding and about to die. This, you see, is not this guy somehow being clued into who Jesus is. If he says, as he says in his question, if you are the Christ, do something about it already. It's his sort of last ditch effort to cheat death, to avoid The punishment that perhaps he was owed. And that's when that other criminal starts to speak up, which I think is so amazing. The other gospels don't have this scene. They don't have what this other criminal says. This thief who is repentant. In fact, all the other gospels say that both of these criminals were were at first very much in the same vein, cursing at the Christ. But something changes in this one's heart. Something changes in his mind. Perhaps we don't know what it is. What brought it on. But something changes. He notices a difference. Notice. Do you not fear God? He says. Rebuking that other thief that was next to him. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He perceives that this Jesus in the middle of them. This one who is receiving all kinds of insults. He perceives that he's actually done nothing wrong. How he could have known that I'm not sure. Perhaps it was in the way that Jesus carried himself perhaps there's the way that Jesus responded perhaps he was in those courtroom scenes seeing Jesus being ridiculed and never opening his mouth and he understands he understands that something deeper is going on here at the scene while they are being hung for crimes they committed by th- because of things they've actually done this one Jesus is being hung because he's done nothing wrong He wasn't a criminal. 
He knows that he's getting what he deserves, even though Jesus is not. And it leads him to plead with Jesus as he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This phrase is so fascinating because it sparked a lot of debate. What did this thief know? What was he aware of? There's been lots of speculation. You know, this thief was, you know, a former disciple and he fell, uh, you know, a follower of Jesus and he fell away and he got into a life of crime and all of that is coming rushing back or what have you. And we can speculate and, and pontificate all we want about this particular thief, but we don't actually know what he do. Did he really know that Jesus was the Messiah or the Savior? Did he actually know about the resurrection from his days in the synagogue? Or uh, did he know actually what he was talking about when he talks about this kingdom? When you come into your kingdom, remember me? What is he referring to? Well, frankly, all of those are unanswerable questions. (laughs) And I think that's sort of the point. We don't know what he knew. We don't know what perhaps he had heard growing up if he was... A synagogue goer or not. And ultimately it doesn't matter what he knew or how much he knew. The only thing that mattered was who he knew. And who he was trusting in. Because right here in this moment he's confessing. He's confessing exactly what he's done wrong. I have done wrong and I'm getting the just punishment for that wrong. And I'm flinging all of my hope and all of my faith on to you. The man who was dying next to him. Even if he didn't fully knew what it meant. I think there was something in that thief that somehow perceived that that man was also more than a man. And that's what brought out this sudden confession. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Accept me. Even though I've done wrong, even though I'm a criminal, God, Jesus, allow me entrance into your kingdom. It's a cry for pardon. It's a cry for forgiveness. (laughs) And Jesus answers this prayer in the most wonderful way possible, I would say. Notice what does he say? Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise today. This is another verse that has sparked no shortage of debate and discussion. What does Jesus mean by today? Is that literal or is that figurative? Does it mean something else? What does he mean by paradise? Does this seem to insinuate that there's some sort of intermediary state between heaven and hell that we go to and... All sorts of theories have been thrown out. I don't think there's much confusion at all, actually. I think Jesus literally means what he says. Today means right then and there. In that moment, when Jesus says those words, Today you will be with me. That was his acknowledgement that that thief would be with the Lord. Where? As he says, in paradise. Which is just the Greek way of saying the Garden of Eden. Same place of blessedness, you could say. Which is just to say that this assurance that Jesus gives this thief is that he would be with him in that new Eden, in that glorious realm that here Jesus was then and there establishing and paying for with his own blood. And he's giving him his seal, his assurance that you will be with me. When that criminal closed his eyes on the cross, 
He opened them up to new life and glory. That's what Jesus was right then and there purchasing. I think the point is this. That criminal is all of us. That criminal is every single one here in this room. You know, I got into a debate online once, which having done that, I can tell you it's not a good place to get into debates. (laughs) Facebook comments are horrible for those sorts of things. But I did once. I was perhaps younger and not as wise. But I was in this debate with a, a friend about this particular text, actually. Because he was seeming to try to say that what Jesus did for this thief was an outlier. It was an anomaly. This isn't how God normally works. This is an exception to the rule, so to speak. After all, this thief, he didn't get a chance to bear fruit or join a church or grow as a disciple. He didn't get to do any of the things that, you, that normally you and I would say make someone a Christian. He didn't attend Sunday school. Didn't wear a tie. Didn't get a chance to do any of those things. He never even took communion. And yet, what do we see here? Jesus pardons him anyways. His statement of you will be with me is that assurance of pardon and forgiveness and absolution for this criminal. Which, for my friend, seemed to imply that this was a special case of grace. And I got into a debate because I was trying to argue with him and say... You're off your rocker. (laughs) That's not entirely true at all. It's not even close to the truth. Because you think, actually I would say, this is how grace always works. This is how Jesus saves every single one of us. How he saves this criminal is how he has saved every single sinner from all time. Think about it. This thief did nothing. He did zilch. To secure his spot in paradise, in the good place, if you will. He had done nothing for that. He had actually done the opposite. A life of crime. Some have imagined him being a sort of a a terrorist or a robber, a highway sort of thief or what have you. The only thing he did here is he confessed and believed. He repented and believed in the one that was next to him. And it's almost as if you can see Jesus saying, that'll do. And how could he say that? Because Jesus was then and there doing everything for him already. Him hanging on the cross. Jesus hanging and dying on that Roman spigot. He was doing everything for your salvation. Everything. Not 99.9% of the things that you need to do for salvation. He was doing 100%. He was buying our hope. He was buying our assurance of glory. He was buying our salvation. He was buying our sanctification. He was buying our life of living for God's glory. Here, how? By shedding his own blood. And what is our hope? Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, period. Not you've been saved by grace through faith and extra things, By joining the right church and by getting into the word. By reading through the Bible in a year. And by taking communion all the time. And by by grace through faith. We love. We love. 
We love making this Christian faith more complex than it is. We add qualifiers to it. We add tests to it. You got to make sure you're saved. In order to make sure that those who say they're saved mean what they say. I think it's well-intentioned. But I think about this thief. He was never baptized. Never discipled. Never memorized a verse. Never learned about the church. Never did any of those Christian things. But actually, I think what happens is he does the most Christian thing. Repentance. This is not to say that all those other things don't matter. They do, very much. Being in church matters a lot. Engaging in discipleship matters. Getting baptized matters. Starting the Bible matters. They all have very important sort of ramifications for you and for me here on this earth. We can't just set them aside. But I think that's missing the point. You know what all those things are? They are the blessings of God that you and I get to enjoy. They don't make us Christian. If you think that you're Christian just because you come to a church every Sunday or twice a month even, it's not cutting it. If you think you're Christian because you've gotten baptized way back in the day, it's not cutting it. If you think you're a son or a daughter of God because of how many verses you've memorized or because of how much you're doing for him in the church, it's not cutting it. Those are the privileges that God gives those who are his. As Ephesians 2.10 says, what? Those are the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. You know what Jesus was doing? He was buying those things that we get to enjoy as God's sons and daughters. Coming to church, being baptized, fellowshipping with the faith. Actually, you know what? We should pity this thief. He never got to enjoy a church service. Maybe you would say, he's better off for it. <laughs> he never got to enjoy it, though. Never got to enjoy a rolling bowl. Never got to take communion. That's actually a pity. See, the point is this. If you were to go out those doors this morning and die, God forbid, what would you point to as evidence of your salvation? <laughs> it's the old James D. Kennedy question. Evangelism explosion. If you're familiar with that old curriculum. If you were to die tonight, what would you point to as evidence that you are a son or a daughter of God? If you point to your baptism, you're wrong. If you point to how many Bible verses you memorize, you're wrong. If you point to how much you're doing in church, you're wrong. If you point to anything other than the Christ on the cross, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You're eternally wrong. It's not going to cut it. You are remembered and redeemed into God's holy family precisely because of one thing. The Christ who stayed on the cross and declared you are forgiven from that very place of having nails through his feet and to his hands. And right then and there, just as he did to that thief. That thief was the first recipient of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. He was given the gift of Christ's vicarious life and death. Which is awesome because he hadn't even died yet. And Jesus says, my word is so good. When I die, you will be with me. Because he was God. 
God come in the flesh. And to each and every one of us here, we are that criminal. We are that thief. We are that sinner who deserves the death that we are owed because of our sin. Because of all the things that we have done wrong. You might think, I have not done anything that bad. God's law is that strict. It's not just good effort, it's perfection. That's what's required of each and every one of us, of each and every soul on this planet. What's required is perfection. You might say, what? Yep. And what is Jesus' gift to each and every one of us in this room, on this planet? The gift of his perfection. His robes for mine. A wonderful exchange. That robe of righteousness he takes off and he drapes it over our shoulders, covering all of our nakedness and guilt and shame and despair. Calvary covers it all. What Christ has done covers all of that. And it happens the moment you believe, not after a certain period of time, after you really prove you make it. You know, I got the best Christmas Eve present. We go home, and Lydia asks to be saved. It's awesome. Weeping as she asks, she wants to go to heaven. And then she asks, what is, how do I get saved? And I'm thinking there that even this little one understands what's at stake. And even for her, all of my conversations have been trying to reassure her. <laughs> That that's true for you right now. She doesn't have to prove anything. She doesn't have to. So she doesn't have to uh, to make sure of anything. She is sure in Christ because Christ is sure for her. And that's true for every single one here in this room. It's not all those other things that you're doing. It's Christ. He has finished it. He has finished the work. He has forgiven you. That's why God in Christ can welcome. He can welcome the worst of the worst sinner. The weakest of the weakest person. To fall on him and find salvation to the uttermost. You know you hear those stories of serial killers finding Christ in a penitentiary. In the first practice we would think God cannot save him. And I would say that's exactly who God saves. He saves the worst of the worst. Because he on the cross took the place of the worst. He took all of that judgment. You see what I think was the most hopeful thing about this scene. Is just that idea. It's not even sort of expressly or, or directly mentioned in the text. This criminal has a lot That he is being judged for. Even being judged for in that moment. And what does Jesus say? You will be with me. Whatever that criminal might have done. Jesus was covering. I've, I've used this illustration before. But I think that we get it wrong. When we think that when we enter into glory. There's going to be another judgment for things that we've done. Yes, there's going to be different judgment seats and we could go through all the different revelation texts that that detail that. 
But you know, for you right here, right now, you should not have any fear of that judgment seat. You know, there's a great white throne judgment. You're not going to be at that one, (laughs) thankfully. Hopefully not. If you believe in Jesus, you won't. The other judgment seat, you should have no fear of that judgment seat at all. And I don't say that glibly or flippantly. I say that because Jesus has already been judged for you. There's no judgment that's going to come down on your head that Jesus hasn't already felt. And when you get there, well, you know what you can say? You know what you can point to? You know what will be our glorious hope? (laughs) He was judged for me. All the things that we deserve to happen to us, he has already taken away. And even more than that, any good work that we do is his anyways. You don't have any good works to present before God. They're Jesus' works. He's the one. He's the one that's done everything necessary for your salvation. So God forbid if you get into a car accident today and you woke up feeling quite miserable. It's a horrible, no good, very bad start to the new year. (laughs) Maybe said some things that you shouldn't have said. Or maybe you've already fallen off the wagon. (laughs) You've already gone back to that thing that you said you would never go back to again. (laughs) That sin that you keep trying to get rid of and you can't seem to. And you made a New Year's resolution and it didn't take any more than 12 hours. You had already messed up. Jesus has taken that away already. Your hope of forgiveness is sure because of Jesus. More than anything, what I would want everyone here in this room and everyone across the country, around the world to know, your forgiveness is sure because of Jesus. You don't have to work yourself into it. You don't have to win it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it because you can't. You are forgiven right where you sit. As you go out of these doors, if you believe in Jesus, his robes for mine, you are forgiven. Period. You are Jesus's and he is yours. And when you get to glory, whenever that day may come for you, Christ is the one who has cleared your account. No TV screen that big is going to show every little minute thing you've done. Jesus has cleared your name. Your record, if you have one, stamped with no condemnation. The judgment has already been passed. (laughs) And there's not going to be new evidence for God to reopen the case. He doesn't do that. (laughs) He doesn't retry a case twice. My friend, sinner, your forgiveness is certain. Because of the cross. Because of what Jesus did. Let this be the operative way in which we approach the new year. All of these days that lie ahead. We have no idea what they can hold. Did you imagine you would be where you are now? Last January? I would probably say probably not. We don't ever know what God is going to bring us through. What God is going to allow us to endure. There's always uncertainty. Always unknown things around each and every bend. But what is certain? 
Christ for you. That message never changes. It never goes away. It never fades. It never fails. It never falters. What Jesus has done for you is certain. I'm sorry, I'm going long. I wish I could shake everyone. Jesus has died for you. And you are forgiven. That's the message that changes the world. That's the message that can change this church, change your life. Perhaps it already has, but perhaps you're not living in light of it. The message of the cross is the message that we live. You are forgiven. You are remembered and redeemed because of the man on the cross. Praise the Lord. Let us pray.